thanks to the testosterone worship team. It's always uh, something I enjoy. And uh, we have, I think we have more fun in rehearsal than we do here, but it's, it's, uh, it is a privilege. If you noticed, there's kind of a theme throughout the music. And that is of God's grace. Now we have a saying, therefore by the grace of God go I. And we oftentimes say, usually in relation to, we hear about something negative happening to a brother or a sister in Christ and they kind of crash and burn and some hard stuff happens and uh, it's kind of like a shot across our bow, if you will. Because we realize that maybe we're one bad decision away from hurting some others and hurting ourselves deeply. And uh, we kind of realize, hey, I, I need to keep my eyes on myself. But here's the truth. If you are in Christ, if you're his follower, if you are God's son, God's daughter, through Jesus Christ, that all of your life is of grace. Everything is of grace. The breath in your lungs, the food on your table today, the gifts, the abilities, the resources that he has given you. Even more so that he does not treat us as our sin deserves, and that he has given us salvation through his son, unmerited favor, and changed our identity, changed our destiny. He has made us sons and, and daughters of the living God. His Holy Spirit comes to dwell within us, to equip us to live the life we're called to live. And there are times he goes before us and meets us in spite of ourselves. Because we are sons, we are daughters of the living God. It's all of grace. And the thing is, the nature of grace is we don't deserve it. It's not deserved. It's just because he is loving and gracious. It's unmerited favor. So today, we're going to be in a situation where grace is needed. If you've been with us through the book of Judges, we're going to be in Judges chapter 6. And if you've been with us, you've noticed that the byword for the whole book is, is everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And we find out that that doesn't work out so well. And God's grace has to intervene again and again. And praise the Lord that it does. And we're going to see that today. That His grace visits His people and his grace visits even that leader who he's going to raise up to deliver his people. Because he needs that grace as well. As well as you and I. So that's where we're going to go today. So before we jump in, let me pray for us. And then we'll look into God's gracious word today. So let me just sum it. Who is like you, O Lord? Compassionate full of mercy. No one loves like you do. No one extends grace like you do. No one can bring redemption like you do. And again, 
the confession is, who is like the Lord? No one. And so we are grateful to be here to worship you, to follow after you, to know that only in you do we have life, and apart from you we have no good thing. So Lord, I pray that you'll take your word and open the eyes of our hearts. Let it hit its target. Let it change us. Let let it correct us where it needs to correct us. Let it encourage us where it needs to encourage us. Lord, let us give us, give us courage where we need courage. Because ultimately, it is about you. And the fact that we are your children, and you want to come and live your life innocent through us. So be glorified today in the preaching of your word. It's in Jesus' name I pray these things. Amen. So last time we were in Judges 4 and 5. And we met Deborah, Barak, and Joel as they threw off the oppressor, Sisera, who didn't see it coming. And God used them, all three of those individuals, to bring oppression, to relieve oppression, I should say, off of God's people. But as the story goes, as the pattern sets throughout, judges, when the judge dies, but people lose sight of God. And so they enter into rebellion. Forty years they had of peace. But they forget after the judge dies. And here's where we pick up the story. Verse 1 of chapter 6. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And for seven years he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. Because of the power of Midian was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in mountain clefts caves, and strongholds. Whenever the Israelites planted their crops, the Midianites, Amalekites, and other eastern peoples invaded the country. And they camped on the land and ruined the crops all the way to Gaza and did not spare a living thing for Israel, neither sheep, nor cattle, nor donkeys. They came up with their livestock and their tents like swarms of locusts. It was impossible to count them or the camels. And they invaded the land to ravage it. Millions so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. So, let's be clear. The evil that God's people did was that they were unfaithful to him. They decided they were going to start worshiping their local gods as well as him. They were two-timing on God. And God said, no, no, it doesn't work that way. And so he turned them over to their their foes who worship these other gods as well. And remember, what's happening here is these people are not here just to plunder. They're here to ravage the land. They basically have a scorched earth policy. We're going to wipe out their crops. We're going to wipe out their livestock to the point where they become extinguished. And so the the people of God, they're hiding in caves and crags. I mean, it's it's, it's almost like the apocalyptic movies we had in the early 80s. It's like they're just hoarding, trying to save food so they don't get caught by these evil ravagers. So this is what happens. And, And and they're at a point where, okay, yeah, we need to cry out to the God whom we've been unfaithful to. And the Lord answers them. But he starts out with a gracious confrontation. 
a gracious confrontation. You see, they're going to get a sermon first before they get the Savior. So in verse 7 it says, When the Israelites cried out to the Lord because of Midian, he sent them a prophet who said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I brought you up out of Egypt and out of the land of slavery. I rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians. And I delivered you from the hand of all your oppressors. I drove them out before you and gave you their land. I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not worship the gods of the Amorites in the land in, in those in whose land you live. But you have not listened to me. Almost feels like a parent, right? What can I tell you? Let's be clear. God is saying, I'm God. I'm God. I delivered you from Egypt. I've delivered you from your oppressors. I gave you the land, and I did it in a very godlike manner. You have to know that my hand was with you, yet you disobeyed. That's why you're in the pickle you're in. Now, this may seem like dressing them down, but really it is grace, because they need to be reminded of the truth. They need to be reminded of the truth because they're stuck and they need him and he's the one who delivered them and he's the one who can deliver them now. But isn't that the nature even of the gospel? You need the bad news first before it can be good news. You are stuck in your sin, all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. You're heading towards eternal destruction. The wages of sin is death. All of you, every one of us, and I am the only one who can deliver you. There's only one Savior, that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Salvation is found in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given to men by which we, by which we must be saved. There's only one Savior. All the other gods they're looking to are false gods. Gods of fertility. Gods of the harvest. Gods of lightning. They're all false gods. There's only one God who is, who is the Lord of all creation. You know, it's easy for us to kind of look, you know, thousands of years later and say, yeah, boy, were those people foolish. But oftentimes as we look in God's Word, we often see ourselves reflected. Because sometimes we're following false gods too. That of money, of fame, achievement, pleasure, hobbies, even good things like family and friends. All can be taken away from you. All can let you down. All are fleeting. The question is, who is your life? It's none of those things. They're good things. But only the Lord is our life. And the Lord is gracious in confronting them and helping them see their need so that they can repent, so that they can turn back to him. 
rather than continuing on in their foolish, self-destructive ways. If God really hated his people, he would let them just do what they were doing, which is heading towards self-destruction. So there's a, there's a, a uh, gracious confrontation. Romans 2.4 says, Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance and patience, not really realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. God's kindness is, is there to lead us toward repentance. So, God graciously confronts to show the truth, both then and now. And then what happens next is what I call a gracious call. And this is where we see the Savior that God will raise up in this situation. Verse 11. The angel of the Lord came and sat under a tree at Ophrah that belonged to Joash, the Abyssalite, where his son Gideon was threshing the wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. Like the rest of Israel, he's cowering, he's hiding, trying to go about his daily life, but hoping he's not going to get caught by the invading Midianites. But Gideon, as we find out, is also in need of grace. Verse 12. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Pardon me, my lord, Gideon replied. But if the Lord was with us, why has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, Did not the Lord bring us out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. Gideon has a couple of obstacles to get over here. The first one is that he's a whining warrior. He's a whining warrior. He, he ignores the, the salutation that the angel Lord gives him. Hail, mighty warrior. The Lord is with you. He just kind of overrides that. He disputes that the Lord is with them. His three-point sermon is this. Why is this happening to us, all this bad stuff? Where are the mighty signs of God, like the past? And number two, and number three, why is he abandoning us? Not I don't know about you, but I'm sitting here kind of going, okay, dude, didn't you get the memo? Didn't you get the memo that you guys are in this position because you've rebelled against the Lord? Because you've chosen to do your own thing? And by the way, the first commandment, and I'm sure you've heard it somewhere along the way, you are an Israelite. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Israel. You shall have no other gods. It is not a lack of information, it's a lack of obedience. And you're whining about the situation you're in. How many of us have complained against the Lord because he let us have the consequences of our own foolishness? God, you could have done something about this. You're God. Yeah, I know. But I'm trying to show you you're heading in a self-destructive direction. And Gideon needs to be confronted with this. You know what's interesting, though? He doesn't do what Nathan did. He doesn't go down the pathway of the blame game. He just answers him like this. And the Lord turned to him, verse 14, and said, Go in the strength you have and save Israel out of man's hand. And am I not sending you? I, 
the Lord your God. I'm calling you to do something amazing. I'm calling you to relieve all of Israel under their oppression. I'm going to use you to deliver from the hand of Midian. This is good news. It'll stop the suffering. You'll see my hand of wonders, and I am going to be with you. I've not abandoned you. But Gideon has some problems. If he doubts God, he doubts himself even more. Listen to how he responds. Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied, but how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. And his second, his second obstacle is he believes himself to be an unworthy warrior. An unworthy warrior. All he can see is where he lacks. That's what he's focusing on. Lack of his qualifications, lack of his, the quality of his tribe and their place, lack of his place in his own clan. He's not willing to do a great work like deliver the people of Israel from the horde of Midian. And the truth is, he does lack. But the Lord doesn't. He lacks, but the Lord doesn't. And the Lord has told him, I will be with you. Verse 16, the Lord answered, I will be with you. And you will strike all Midian, leaving none alive. Gideon. I know who you are. I'm calling you to be a mighty warrior because the Lord is with you. That's the message. That's the good news. You know, sometimes we, we've got a daunting task ahead of us. We compare our abilities, our resources, and it doesn't match up to the task. But that's not the point. The point is that the God is calling us to do is says, I will be with you. And it will go beyond your ability and your resources and what you think you have going for us, going for you. I know many of you are familiar with Corey Tendum. She was a, a Dutch Christian who had hidden Jews during World War II. She was captured along with her whole family, placed in a concentration camp, and had to work through years of bitterness and, and forgiveness against the Nazis that had imprisoned her. But when she was released, God made her a mighty warrior for the gospel because she was able to put those things in his hand and went around the whole world, I mean literally around the whole world, telling about the gospel, the goodness of Christ. And here's one of her quotes. She says, It is not my ability, but my response to God's ability that counts. Let me read that again. It is not my ability, but my response to God's ability that counts. If you're in Christ, he says, I go with you. I go with you, and I'm going to do what I've called you to do through you. It won't be you doing it, it'll be me doing it through you. And oftentimes, what he does, he does inside of us especially when we first come to faith, right? Because we need him to transform us. We need him to change us. Titus 3.5 says, He didn't save us by righteous works, we did in righteousness. But through his mercy, 
through the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. It's what he does in us. That's true in salvation. It's true in serving him. It doesn't depend upon you. It doesn't depend upon me. It depends upon him. And so the question I have, because all of us have challenges, what might God be calling you to do, but you're limiting him because you're limiting his grace and how he wants to manifest himself in you. Because you're focused on your own ability, you're focused on your own resources. He wants to do something beyond what you can do. And again, this is all of grace. Gideon didn't deserve this call. We're going to find out his dad is a primetime idolater and leading God's people in the wrong direction. He didn't deserve this call, but none of us do. It's all of grace. And perhaps, even as Gideon realizes his downfall, God is saying, yeah, I want to be used in your weakness, Gideon. So back to our passage. Gideon actually starts to warm up to this idea. He's starting to be convinced, okay, maybe this is legitimate. And so he believes that his response has to be maybe some sort of religious sacrifice. And what happens next is what I call a gracious consumption, as we pick it up in verse 17. Gideon replied, Now if I have found favor in your eyes, give me a sign that it is really you talking to me, Please do not go away until I come back and bring my offering set before you. And the Lord said, I will wait until you return. Gideon inside prepared a young goat, and from an ephah of flour made bread without yeast, putting the meat in a basket and its broth in a pot. He brought them and offered them to him under the oak. The angel of the Lord said, Take the meat and the unleavened bread, place them on this rock. Pour out the broth. And as Gideon did so, the angel of the Lord touched the meat and the unleavened bread with the tip of his staff that was in his hand. Fire flared from the rock, consuming the meat and the bread, and the angel of the Lord disappeared. Well, that's pretty intense. We'd be a kind of all in all if that happened here upon the on the stage, wouldn't we? But see, up to this point, I don't think Gideon really knows who he's talking to. It's just this guy. He's so on the script. Is he a prophet? Is he an angel? We know who he is. We know who this guy is. It's the angel of the Lord. But until this, this sacrifice is completely this, you know, consumed and he disappears, he's not sure. But then after that happens, he knows. You know, oh, I have been in the presence of the angel of the Lord. I've been really in the very presence of the living God himself. Now, there's some question, and I'm not going to read on this, this, this pathway, but there's some question. Is this actually a pre-incarnate Christ that's doing this? Because there are times that he says, the Lord says, and there are other times he says, I say. He's answering for both the Father, and himself somehow. How does that work? And sometimes we get hung up on the word angel because we think of angels as created heavenly beings that are sent, and they are. But the word angel actually means messenger. 
The word angel means messenger, and that's who this angel of the Lord is. He is the, he is the messenger of the Lord. So whether he is actually just a, a high, the high-ranking angel or he is uh, pre-incarnate Christ, he is answering for the Lord and it brings the holy presence of God. And this is a little concerning for Gideon. He says in verse 22, When Gideon realized that the angel was the angel of the Lord, he exclaimed, Alas, sovereign Lord, I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. I have come into the presence of the Lord, and he's holy. And I realize I'm not. You see, Scripture says you cannot see God face to face and live. And somehow he's seen this disguised messenger of the Lord, the Lord himself. And he's fearful, like, I might just get consumed myself. But then a voice comes. Verse 23, But the Lord said, Peace. Do not be afraid. You are not going to die. You see, the appearance of the angel of the Lord is not here to condemn Gideon or even the people, but rather to bring peace. Peace between Israel and their God. And it says in verse 24, So Gideon built an altar to the Lord, and there called it, The Lord is peace. To this day it stands in Ophrah of the Abezrites. You see, this is more than a memorial. It's a, it's a foreshadowing, if you will, of what God intends to do in Jesus himself. That God is not coming just to consume sinful men and women with his holiness. No, he's come to bring peace. And he does so in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Who's interestingly enough called the Prince of Peace, as we read about him in Isaiah. He's going to bring peace. Well, this gracious consumption leads to a quickening or an adjustment of his faith. He can no longer go on with the crowd. He can no longer go on with his family and worshiping these pagan idols. And so what we see next is a gracious conversion. Verse 25. That same night the Lord said to him, Take the second bowl from your father's herd, the one seven years old, tear down your father's altar to bear, cut down the actual pole beside it, then build a proper kind of altar to the Lord your God at the top of this height. Using the way of the actual pole that cut <coughs> that you cut down, offer the second bowl as a burnt offering. So Gideon took ten of his servants and did as the Lord told him. But because he was afraid of his family and the townspeople, he did it at night rather than in the daytime. In the morning when the people of the town got up, there was Baal's altar demolished with ash, the Asherah pole beside it cut down and the second bull sacrificed on the newly built altar. Now whatever faults we find in Gideon, i got to give him props for this. He's demonstrating his faith, his trust, and integrity in knocking down this local bell altar, by the way, which is set up by his own dad. That's a tough one, huh? And yes, you know, whose bully sacrifices? His dad's second bull. Hey, what happened to Gizmo in the back? Oh, well, dad, uh, 
Not a use for him last night. It's not easy to go against the community. I think it's even harder to go against your family. And I think, you know, as we read, Gideon had a reason to fear and why he did this at night. Verse 29. They asked each other, who did this? When they carefully investigated, they were told Gideon, the son of Joash, did it. The people of the town demanded of Joash, bring out your son, he must die. Because he has broken down Baal's altar and cut down the Asher pole beside it. That time didn't provide the cover that he hoped it would take. His brave act of defiance, breaking down this altar, pointing to the Lord, it wasn't well received. The answer is, let's kill him. But then Joash, his dad, has a stand-up moment. It was his altar, remember. And he becomes kind of what they call an amateur theologian. Verse 31. But Joash replied to the hostile crowd around him, Are you going to plead Baal's cause? Remember, guys, this, this is a, a, pagan, a pagan god we're worshiping. Are you trying to save him? Whoever fights for him shall be put to death in the morning. You're not touching my son. If Baal really is God, he can defend himself when someone breaks down his altar. <laughs> hey guys, we've been worshiping this pagan God. It's not done us any good. Why are we defending Baal? He's not even really our God. He's God of our enemies. And if he really is God, well, he can defend himself. He's got an issue. He can, he can deal with my son. I wonder if Joash saw the bankruptcy of his own idolatry and was having a return to the Lord. In God's grace, it started to turn Gideon, his family, and the people towards the Lord. Here's the question I asked, though. Because remember, Dad built the altar. Joash built the altar. Are there some idols that our families of origin have put up that we need to cut down or tear down? Maybe it's an attitude. Maybe it's a behavior. Maybe it's a value. I don't know. At the end of the day, the Lord calls us to give our full loyalty to him. You know, Jesus, as he calls us to follow him, he says, if anyone comes to me and doesn't hate their father and mother, wife and child, brother and sister, even their own life, they can't follow me. Again, I think you all know, this is not an issue of God commanding, or Jesus commanding to hate. It's an issue of loyalty. It's an issue of who is your first priority. Who is your first love? Who really is your God? Are there some idols in our families that need to be torn down? He gets a new nickname. Verse 32. So because Gideon broke down Baal's altar, they gave him the name Job Baal, saying that they let Baal contend with him. So he's the famous Baal agitator, if you will. But there's still a human oppression now. We kind of dealt with things on a worship level. Now we're going to get back to his mission. 
Verse 33, a gracious confirmation. Now all the Midianites, Amalekites, and other, and other eastern peoples joined the forces and crossed over the Jordan and camped at the Valley of Jezreel. From the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon, he blew the trumpet, summoned the Abyssalites to follow him, and sent messengers throughout Manasseh, calling them to arms, and also into Asher, Zebulon, Naphtali, so they went off to meet them. So he, they went off to meet them. So he starts doing his due diligence, calls his force together, which will later on be reduced, as if you know the rest of the story. But he needs reassurance here. I mean, he's about to jump off the high dive, right? And once you jump, there's no going back. You've been there at that edge, like, oh, here we go. Because once you jump, there's no going back. And so Gideon said to the Lord, verse 36, If you will save Israel by my hand, as you have promised, look, I will place wool fleece on the threshing floor. If there is dew only on the fleece, and all the ground is dry, then I will know that you have saved Israel by my hand, as you said. I need to know that you're not just the creator of nature. I need to know that you're the Lord of creator, and you can do what, of, uh, Lord of nature, and you can do whatever you want. Verse 38. And that is what happened. Game rose early the next day, and he squeezed the fleece and wrung out the dew and a bowl full of water. So God is, is gracious there. He's gracious to answer, and he's generous. I mean, it's not a few drops. It's a whole bowl full. Is there any doubt that this is from my hand? Well, God is very gracious, but Gideon is very human. Just like us. And uh, he needs a little more assurance. Verse 39. Gideon said to the Lord, Do not be angry with me. He knows he's walking on thin ice here. Let me make one more request. Allow me one more test with the fleece. But this time make the fleece dry and the ground covered with dew. I need clarity that this is what you're calling me to do. And I need clarity on your ability that you can actually do what you say you're going to be able to do. And that night, verse 40, God did so. Only the fleece was dry and all the ground was covered with dew. So the Lord was very gracious to answer his reluctant leader because he was going to go into a dangerous place on a dangerous mission where the forces he was going to face were against all odds. And it makes me ask the question, when we're determining what God is calling us to do, how do you hear from God? I mean, answer number one is God has given us his word, right? He's speaking to us through his word. And there are some things that are just plain there. You know, if you ask God, should I commit adultery? Should I take revenge? The answer is no. Okay, that's clear. It's, there's no two-two, all right. There's, there's no question about that. And sometimes, God answers by just a, an answer of a principle, right? Is what I'm doing loving my neighbor? There's just an example of that. Okay? But sometimes, you know, God's words lack specifics. Lack specifics. It doesn't tell me who I should marry. 
doesn't tell me necessarily what college I should go to. It doesn't tell me what I'm going to do for my career. All those things. And, and so God is in the process. He's using it to draw us closer to himself, but God doesn't always speak to us through his word for those things. So the next area is his Holy Spirit that dwells within us. It can be a thought, a feeling, a voice, a vision. And as we grow closer to him, I think we become more sensitive to that. But the challenge with that is it's so often so subjective. Is that my voice? Is that my feeling? Am I just hearing or feeling or projecting what I want? And so we need some sort of confirmation along the way. Oftentimes God speaks to us through people. Godly, biblical counsel. Like they can they live life, they can point us in the right direction. But we have to be careful with those folks too because people are sinful. People are human and sometimes they use their own selfish motives. Some people say, the Lord told me that you should. Hmm. Okay. And, and I want to hear that. I want to hear that if the Lord is speaking to that person. But sometimes it's, it's not motivated by the Lord. It's motivated by their selfish motives. And so we need confirmation there. I, I promise you folks, if God is calling you and someone's giving you a word from the Lord, he's going to confirm it somewhere else along the way. God will use circumstances, an open door, an opportunity that you did not have, or just by a process of elimination. All these options are reduced. Here's your, your opportunity. But the, here's the thing. We need to be careful about that. We still need to ask the question, is this open door going to cause me to do something that's contrary to God's word. Is it going to cause me to do something that's going to draw me away from the Lord? So we need to be careful about just saying, well, there's an open door. But oftentimes God does use all those things. Here's, here's the one principle that we need to apply when we're seeking the Lord's direction. Surrender. Surrender. Am I willing to do what God is calling me to do? even though I may not like it at the outset. And here's where I'm going to share my own fleece story with you. And I'm sharing with you because it powerfully changed the direction of my life. I was in seminary. I spent three years at a church in the inner city in Chicago. And it was a wonderful experience for me. And God did some wonderful things there. And I thought that God was calling me into urban ministry. I mean, that's where he was directing me. And I was fully bought into where this church was going. And at the end of three years, I had two of my buddies who had started a singles ministry up in a suburb called Gurney. So think extreme north, and I was in extreme south, right? And they said to me, this is when God told me that, right? We think you're the heir apparent to this singles ministry because we have to leave and go do our, our internship to graduate. So in the meantime, we need somebody to lead this ministry and we think it's you. And I chuckled and I said, there's no way. Because God's leading me in this direction. And I'm so invested. But I said, you know what? I, I also want to have ears to hear if God really is speaking. 
So I set out my own fleece, thinking this would never happen. Not because I, I thought so much of myself what I was doing in the cities, but just that, that that's where I felt like God was leading me. I said, if, if the elders of this church will release me, then I'll go. Because I thought there's no way that's going to happen. There's no way. Again, not because I thought much of myself, but just because that's where I was invested. That's, I felt like, you know, they saw that. And you know what happened? They didn't call me. They didn't consult with me. But they released me. I said, what? Really? Yeah, Nathan. And I had a choice. I had a choice. Because I had, I had said, that's, that's how I would, I would come. Was I going to obey that? Was I going to move toward that? I didn't want to do that. I didn't want to go up to suburbia. But God did it. What was I going to do? So I went. I went. And the first year was horrible. It was horrible because I went with resentment. And I did not love the flock that God put in my charge. But then I had a gracious confrontation by the senior pastor who saw that I didn't love the flock that I was in charge of. And he set me straight. Nathan, God has given you this flock to love. And so I said, okay, I'm all in. And he changed my heart. And some of those same people who used to rub my fur the wrong way, they were some of my dearest friends. They are some of my dearest friends. And I grew to love them. And then God gave me more opportunity. He grew me as just opportunity with worship. I mean, I became their interim worship pastor for a season. That's why you see me up here. Not that I'm a great worship leader, but I'm just telling you, God grew me. Giving me that opportunity. God blessed me. God was gracious to me. And then God graciously brought me my wife there. Because I decided to say, okay, Lord. Okay. Two things that I want you to just hear from this. Are you willing to go where God is calling you to go? And are you confident that he can get you there? Because he can. I promise you. And he'll use maybe four of his methods or something else. But God is in the business of directing his people graciously. Even if he's using a fleece for you. So within all this, I hope you've seen God's grace and mercy. His gracious confrontation to tell us the truth about ourselves. That we are heading towards self-destruction without him. His gracious call, first of all, to be his sons and daughters, second of all, to serve him and know that he can do what he's called us to do through us. Along the way also, <laughs> gracious to consume, show us that he is holy and gracious to convert us, <laughs> to take away those idols that maybe are holding us back. And last of all, to confirm to direct our steps. He is gracious. Maybe for some of you fathers out there, you're feeling like, man, 
I don't have what it takes. You don't. But God does. And he wants to use you to love your kids and to be a blessing to them. Whatever else challenges out there, he's gracious. Our God, our Heavenly Father, is a good Father. Let me pray for us and then invite the worship team up to close us in worship. So Lord, I thank you for this word. And we aren't even done with, with this story, but we've seen your grace all over it already. And we say thank you for that. And we say thank you, Father, no matter how good or how poor our earthly fathers were, you, Heavenly Father, are a good and gracious Heavenly Father, and you love us perfectly. And you loved us perfectly in sending your Son. So we thank you for that. We thank you for how you love us in him. Would you give us confidence in you? Would you give us ears to hear when you, can, when you confront us? And would you give us uh, faith that you are going to direct us and meet us, get us to where we need to be? So again, I thank you, Lord, for your word. Lord Jesus, I thank you. You are a gracious Savior. And it's in your name I pray these things. Amen. Would you stand as we respond in worship?